The complaint about the, the lack of depth uh, in the church at present uh, is a pretty easy uh, conversation to have, and I think it happens often uh, in our circles. It can be uh, great fun for sure and seemingly empowering uh, to have a chuckle or two about some of the liturgical chaos that takes place you know, out there uh, and some of the silliness that might come from the pulpits uh, and, you know, that's all well and good. Um, if we're honest, anyone who's not able to poke a bit of fun, a bit of fun at the current state of Christendom uh, just isn't really looking hard enough. Uh, the danger, of course, is that in the midst of our naming, you know, the silliness that takes place in our day, that we make the mistake of taking ourselves seriously as the antidote. I mean, there is nothing worse than the man who witnesses the clownish endeavors uh, of the masses, but he does so with a concerned and soured face of someone who's become altogether somber. Uh, the only thing more impish than the person who can't perceive what things should be taken seriously is the one who takes everything seriously, or worse still, uh, takes himself seriously. And our text is here this morning to help us with that danger in case we're in danger of taking ourselves seriously. I want us to see it under three headings. The first, laughing at your gods. In the first five verses, that's what we want to consider, laughing at your gods. Uh, you remember last week our text ended with the announcement that the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines and the glory had departed from Israel. And the next several chapters of the book of Samuel really is just going to be us following the Ark of the Covenant. It's the main character uh, of these next several chapters. Israel is off screen out of the picture, uh, and we are seeing what is uh, happening uh, with the ventures of the Ark. Uh, immediately, we learn that the Ark has been taken to one of the principal cities of the Philistines, Ashdod. And as soon as it gets there, they place it into the temple of their principal god, Dagon. Uh, this is exactly what, uh, you know, would take place if your God won in a, in a battle. Part of the glory of battle are the trophies of war. And one of the trophies they have in their own minds is the God of Israel at their disposal. And so they take them to the proper place and place them before God, uh, their God. Now, what D Dagon was the God of is up for quite a bit of debate. It used to be pretty commonly accepted that he was uh, a fish god for this seafaring people that did do uh, a lot of fishing, that he was the god that provided for them sustenance in that way. More modern scholarship, uh, having found some other texts and evidence, believe that Dagon's probably a grain god. Uh, but be that as it may, we don't really know, uh, and partly because of the story, you know, to we we we. we learn over and over that it's the victors who get to write the history. Um, and there's probably a reason we don't know much about Dagon, uh, because he has a rough go of it, at least in this text. Uh, what we do know that is in the temple stood a fairly tall statue of this god. Uh, we know that from the story. It couldn't be a, a Buddha-sized, you know, weeble-wobble-shaped statue, or it wouldn't fall down uh, and need to be carted back up. But on this particular day, this conquering army has returned, and with them comes this particular trophy, and so they take it and they place it before Dagon. It was their way of saying that our God has defeated your God. If our people defeated your people, it's because the gods that reign over us are stronger than the gods that reign over you. 
The problem is, as readers, we know that that's not the case. We know that God wanted Israel to lose. He told us ahead of time he was going to do it, but that's not known to the the Philistines. They don't have that kind of revelation, so all they can go with is what they've seen with their eyes, and they have the ark, and Israel's, you know, defeated behind them, so surely Dagon is more powerful than the God of Israel. And so they place this somewhat little four and a half by two and a half foot box uh, in front of this fairly large statue. Uh, and even the picture presents it almost like, you know, uh, the ark of God, which the Bible tells us is the footstool of the God of heaven, is now the footstool of Dagon. Uh, and, you know, it's possible they're trying to add him as another god to their pantheon of gods. Like, well, he may not be as strong as Dagon, but maybe he can help us here and there. But uh, no matter what they're doing, they're definitely saying, that he's subservient to this God that he stands before. And I love the way the text reads. It says, early the next morning, behold, uh, if you've taken Hebrew, hine, it's, it's almost like surprise, you know, uh, this, this just happened. Behold, they get up early the next morning and there's Dagon lying face down in the posture of worship and homage before this little ark that's been placed before him. You know, the Philistines uh, realize that it's no good one way or the other, but it's hard for them to interpret. You know, things happen. Maybe this is just a coincidence, some sort of natural phenomenon. And so uh, they say, you know, hey, you know, come guys, quick. Uh, our God has fallen and, and he can't get up. So we all need to get together and use all our muscle and help lift him back up to his perch. And so, you know, you can see them you know, straining and grunting to help this poor God who can apparently move from where he's fallen back to his space, and they hoist him up there. I mean, the comedy of the whole thing is quite delightful and intentional. Uh, As readers, we know that Israel lost because God wanted them to lose. And while the Philistines don't know it, God's going to use this particular uh, uh, adventure in, their, uh, in the temple of their God to show who the real victor is, but not only to show them who the victor is, to mock their God and the perceived power that they think he has. And the first thing he does is to have Dagon bowing before him and the Philistines straining with all their might to help their fallen God back into place. Now, if you know enough families helping care for, you know, aging and elderly parents, one of the things that happens as time goes on uh, is, you know, concerns about leaving the aging parent alone because of the potential for falling. Uh, And the reason why that's such a big deal is because, one, it can be deadly, not necessarily the fall itself, but the ramifications afterward, things like infection and broken bones and a lack of healing and so forth. But the other concern is the reality of, well, if they fall and there's only one of us home, because a lot of times both mobility and weight and so forth, the the, the fallen, uh, you know, uh, parent can't help assist you lift them back into place. And so, you know, this concern of what will we do if, you know, dad or mom falls uh, when we're not home. Uh, And here the Philistines, interestingly enough, are taking their conquering hero, much like an aged parent and saying, let's help this guy get back into place. Uh, And it gets worse 
the very next day, to, to utterly disabuse them of the notion that somehow Yahweh was defeated by Dagon, we learn that after they've engaged in all that hard work just to get him back to where he belonged, that the next day they find him once again face down in front of this box. But behold, this time, his head's lying there and his hands are lying there, falling off. You know, you can hear the Philistines saying, you know, we've had it with this place. We have no food, we have no jobs, and our God's heads are falling off. Um, but notice, it didn't fall off according to the text. Literally, it reads in Hebrews, his head and his hands are cut off. That, that someone's come and done this to him. But the question, well, well who is there? Who could have, you know, been at war with this God in their midst? I mean, this is an act truly of total dominance. You'll see throughout the book of Samuel, this idea of chopping off someone's head is a way of signifying that you have subjugated and dominated that particular army. We'll see it in the story of David and Goliath. I mean, this is how you make known publicly that you are subject to me. And now God has done this to their God. But not only subjugation and dominance, it's an act of humiliation. I mean, as the psalmist tells us, you know, the God who sits in heaven, when he hears the plans of men rebelling against them with their gods, he sits in heaven and he laughs. And now he's having a good laugh at the expense of Dagon, and as we'll see, the Philistines along with them. You know, God isn't just defeating him, he's belittling him. You know, making a mockery of him in front of his people who have bowed down to him and given literally, uh, you know, all of their, their blood, sweat, and tears to this God. And we laugh, and we should. But if we laugh at the God, Dagon, you have to also laugh at those who worship him, according to the Scriptures. Because those who worship false gods become like them, according to the Scriptures. I mean, the Philistines are being informed this day of who the true victor has been in each battle that they fought. It's always been Yahweh. He just does what he wants. He does whatever he pleases. You know, their God has no head. He has no hands. He can't help himself up, and he's surely not going to be able to help them with what's about to happen to them next. You know, you know the scriptures tell us our God's arm is not short that he cannot save. Well, Dagon literally has no arms any longer, and he has no outstretched arm to help them. But so it is with idols, even before this sort of thing happens to them, right? As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 115, you know, they have, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have ears, but they can't hear. Feet, but they can't walk. I mean, we should have known that from the first fall. You know, he couldn't even walk back to where he was supposed to be. And here he is, powerless. And yet people worship him. People give their lives and their time and their energies to gods like this. And we laugh about it, but of course, if we laugh at it, we're really laughing at ourselves. You know, these stories do feel foreign to us. We don't often go into the God, temple of gods and see statues and people giving homage to them. You'd have to travel, uh, you know, to other places to see it. It still exists in the world. It's just not very common here in our Western world. And yet, while it feels foreign to us, it isn't foreign at all. While we may not have statues, we have plenty of gods that we give ourselves to in hopes that they will help us in time of need. 
And we give much like the Philistines do in ways uh, that are so strange because the gods that we serve can't give back to us. They can't help us. We're trying to help them in hopes that they'll help us, but it never works that way. I've used this quote before, but I love it because it is so poignant from a famous um, uh, graduation speech by um, uh, David Foster Wallace. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in this life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You notice what he's saying in this quote, that we all worship, all of us, not just uh, those guys out there who don't go to church. And yet we don't always worship the true God. And the real way to find that out is how, you know, we react to things in this life. What really keeps us up at night? Where do we put our time and energy and our trust? I mean, do we worship something that carries us Or do we worship something that we have to carry, something that we have to really tend to and take care of? And if it ever gets touched or taken uh, or or is threatened, we feel threatened. And either anger or fear or uh, anxiety start to creep up. And that's how you know you're worshiping something other than the true and living God. And so while we laugh at the Philistines and laugh at Dagon, and we should, and we should laugh at those who worship false gods, That means we should be laughing at ourselves. We'll at least begin to do that now in the next uh, several verses. In verses 6 to 12, I want us to see after laughing at your God, we should be laughing at our enemies. You know, Yahweh is not content to just humiliate Dagon. He marches through the whole of the Philistine land, declaring his power everywhere he goes. Uh, and so as the idol, so go the worshipers. Notice, uh, you know, we, you become like what you worship. That's what the psalmist says, right? Uh, your, your idols have no eyes and ears and, they have, you know, they don't have hands and they can't. And he says, you know, and look at you, you know, you're, you have eyes, but you can't see. And you have ears, but you can't hear. Your heart is like stone. He says, you know, those who worship those things become like them. And notice how God defeats them. I mean, according to the older translations, by literally becoming a pain in in the backside. Um, But that may or may not be the right translation. We'll see. Uh, The older translations, you have a King James version, for instance, you'll read that uh, God afflicted them with with hemorrhoids. Uh, Your text says tumors, probably. Uh, It wants to make it kind. A lot of people think maybe it's the bubonic, bubonic plague. But still, if that were true, 
Um, we'll talk about why that could be true. Uh, it would still be tumors, uh, some of which would be in your un unmentionable areas, your private areas. Uh, and so God's not just defeating them. He's doing much like he did to Dagon. He's humiliating them. He's making it not only uncomfortable, he's making it unsavory. I mean, you could almost see the after game commentator asking him, you know, uh, after the game, what happened? Uh, you know, what took you down, you guys? You know, you were doing so well. In the first half, it seemed like you had them. They're like, well, Gene, you know, it was the hemorrhoids that got us. That's really what did us in. If you look at verses 6, 7, 9, 11, notice the language. Yahweh's hand was heavy against the Philistines. Here lies Dagon, no hands at all. And God's hand over and over and over oppressing his enemies. We learn from the text that the people of Ashdod break out with some form of growths on them. And as we talked about, it could be one of several things. Uh, but whatever it is, it's both painful and humiliating. And so the people of Ashdod thought, like, you know, I don't know what to do. So they call all the leaders together. Like, we don't know exactly what to do, but we know we don't want this thing here anymore with us. The God of Israel seems to be against us. We would like him to leave if at all possible. And so they get together and in all their wisdom, they think, well, maybe it's just Ashdod that this God doesn't like. Let's move him over to Gath. And the same thing happens at Gath. Everyone breaks out in these tumors and the people are oppressed and the Lord's hand is heavy against them. And so they cry out and they say, you know, can you get rid of this thing? We don't want it here. And they say, send it to Ekron. The people of Ekron like try to cut it off at the pass. They're like, don't send it here. We've already seen what this God does. And yet they decide apparently that it's going to go there. And it says the people who got lucky in Ekron only got the tumors but many died because the Lord's hand was very heavy against Ekron. And notice how it ends. It says after this, you know, game of hot potato with the ark, it says the cry of the city went up to heaven. You know, that language is only used one other time in the whole Old Testament. And it's when Israel was, was so sorely oppressed by Pharaoh for so long that they finally cried out to heaven. It says, and God heard them. And he showed mercy to them. And this is its second use. I mean, do you see what just happened if that's the case? Our text started with this little box that they thought how somehow managed the God of Israel being placed as a footstool in front of Dagon. And our story ends with this ark moving from city to city, going on its own victory tour, its own victory march, taking out its enemies as it goes. You know, God, they're thinking this God lost, and God's over here, you know, doing damage behind enemy lines, defeating Dagon and his people so soundly that each town surrenders and then sends it off for the next town to get defeated until finally oppressed so totally that they cry out as Israel had before in Egypt to heaven. But they don't need to be delivered from Pharaoh. They need to be delivered from the God of heaven, the one who's doing these very things to him. And their God is lying headless on the floor with no ability to help them. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And the Philistines and their claimed victory didn't know that they were bringing about their own humiliation and defeat.
And so if that's less laughing at our enemies, notice finally laughing at yourself. I mean, do you see the activity in this text? The Philistines are active. Twice we're told they took the ark and they placed it. But their God, totally passive. He can do nothing. In fact, the only time we see him move, he's got movers. He's got people helping him get from one place to the next. But in contrast to that, we have Yahweh as completely active. So active that he takes down, at this time, Israel's greatest enemy all by himself. I mean, notice Israel is entirely blanked from the story. They are off screen. They aren't doing anything other than licking their wounds at home for the utter defeat that they've just suffered. Israel is clueless about all that God's doing in Philistia until the ark comes back rambling home unsolicited to them. I mean, God literally does this all by himself. They are of no help at all in the fight against their enemies. In fact, they didn't even know a fight was going on at this particular time. All they know is that God is fuming mad about their sins and they're being punished for it. And so instead of them, God has been carted off to exile, but he comes home, as we'll see next week, weighed down with the spoils of war. Interestingly enough, golden tumors and golden mice, you know, what? just what you would want uh, as a gift and a tribute. And this teaches us something very important about God and about us. Yes, it teaches us that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases without a doubt. But it also teaches us that God doesn't need anything from you. I mean, your salvation, the victory won over your sin and death and the devil, you contributed absolutely nothing. I mean, Christ himself, deserted by friend and enemy alike, in exile on this earth, he dealt with our salvation alone, all by himself. You were off screen. It happened before you were born. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You didn't lift a finger to help, and you weren't even looking for it when it arrived. In fact, you contributed much like the Israelites did. You contributed the sin that sent God off into exile among his enemies. But oddly, in that exile, God won. I mean, the whole story of the Bible, with all its twists and turns, with all of its many pages, if you can't get this one thing, you're not reading it well. It tells and retells us ad nauseum. Our sin problem is so large and our ability so small that it is too overwhelming for us to deal with. And we have unsuccessfully addressed it time and time and time again. And our relationship with God can't be fixed by us. And if anything is going to change it, God is going to have to do something, and not with a little help from his friends, but all by himself. And he does. He comes and he does just that. And while interestingly enough, he needs nothing from you, on the flip side, you need everything from him. And because he loves you, people of God, he's going to help you see it by mocking your gods. <laughs> 
Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> have you ever noticed, you know, our God's heads are falling off, spiritually speaking, and we have hemorrhoids, spiritually speaking? I mean, all these things that we endeavor to do and we put our trust in, God will let them come to nothing because he loves you. Some things deserve to be laughed at, and we are one of those things. And the gods that we serve and how hard we work to keep them in their place, no matter how many times they fall and they fall and we hoist and we hoist and we you know, bite our fingernails and stay up late at night and we think we'll do it one more time and this time it will work, God is good enough to never let another God stand in his place. And you do understand, don't you, that our idolatry is alive and well. I mean, you can make an idol out of absolutely anything. Whatever you put your trust in, whatever you depend on for your happiness or your stability, there is your God. And it can be all kinds of wonderful things that just are beneath being deity. I mean, you can make a God out of your family. You can make a God out of your job. You can make a God uh, out of beauty, out of money, out of comfort, out of country, out of your ministry, out of your reputation. All things that in proper order are just fine, but they're terrible as God's. And God will never let us, if we are his, keep our hope there. He will constantly knock those things down and expose them as utterly weak. I mean, how do you know it's happening to you now? Are you stressed out? Are you anxious? Why? I mean, what are you trusting in that is delivering that sort of fruit? Are you angry? What is it you love so much that you're afraid of losing? That we're allowing that sort of anger and bitterness to sit in? Because there is your God. Are you working and working and working and working, afraid that if you don't just keep going, the wheels are going to fall off and you just won't have enough and nothing will be provided for and nothing will get done if you, the duty-bound kind, just don't do it? What are you so desperately trying to put back up on that pedestal and hope it will stay there? Are you losing sleep because your gods keep falling over? Are you needy for affirmation from all sorts of places and people and things? What God are you trying to get to notice you and finally tell you you're enough? I mean, if you don't see any that you're struggling with, it's only because you're blind. It's not because you're not an idolater. And Calvin tells us rightly that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. They're being made day by day, hour by hour, and sometimes even minute by minute. And they get knocked down, and for a moment we realize how futile they are, and then we hoist them back up and turn our eyes off the true and living God. And God, in His mercy, will kick them over. And even when you go grab and pick them back up again, he will topple them. And when we get mad and frustrated and sad and sullen, 
He will do it again only because he loves you and he knows that all those gods are powerless to save you. Which is why as we, you know, close the sermon and end up singing this hymn afterward, you should with all your heart sing that line, let every idle foot, every idol underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. You see, our God is in the heavens. He does do whatever he pleases. But people of God, the good news, he was, he was pleased to save you. It was out of his good pleasure that he chose you for no good reason. That he saved you without your help. Without your input, without even knowing you needed it. And before you even know, knew you wanted it. And he continues to save you. Even when you find so many other gods so attractive even when they've been shown to be futile and powerless and weak. Our God came to this earth, lived as an exile because of the sin of his people. And because you and I have loved other gods more than him, he allowed himself to be taken by his enemies. And what's fascinating is that while behind enemy lines and while it looked like he was utterly defeated and humiliated before the watching world, our Savior disarmed the devil, defeated sin, and made a mockery of death as he laughed at it in the resurrection. And he's come home with the trophies to prove it. They might be golden mice and golden tumors, but they're you. <laughs> you are one of those trophies. He does whatever he pleases, and he is pleased to save sinners like you and to make you his own special treasure. Some things do deserve to be laughed at. Things like us. The cross tells us that pretty clearly. It tells you that you aren't who you think you are and you can stop taking yourself so seriously. But that same cross gives you permission to laugh because God saved you anyway. We did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to accomplish it. It was just a gift given. And what can you do with something so free, given to someone so undeserving, by a God so great? I mean, all you can do is laugh and receive these gifts with the news that comes, that brings them, the good news of our Savior. Let's pray.